Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to Season 3. On this week's episode... This week on Plenary Session, you're in for a real treat. I've got two guests for you. i got Jonathan Darrow. He's an expert in patent litigation and patent law, and he's on the faculty of the Harvard Medical School. And he's going to talk about the patent dispute around a very popular fish oil derivative product, a slice of a fish called Vasepa. You won't want to miss this discussion about patents. Next, I've got Toby Richards, and he is the first author on a new paper called Prevent. It's out in the Lancet. It is a randomized control trial of whether or not patients scheduled for major abdominal surgery should get a slug of IV iron two weeks before that surgery. You won't want to miss this discussion and what it's like to be a trialist who runs a trial for a decade. So you won't want to miss this discussion. And first, I have a monologue where I'm going to hit on a number of topics. You won't want to miss today's episode. Stay tuned. If you like this podcast and want more content, follow me on Twitter at vprasadmdmph. Check out the YouTube channel, vinayprasadmdmph. Patreon backers will get access to the slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. Want to hear from us? Email us your question at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. First up, colon cancer screening. This last week, something very tragic happened. Chadwick Boseman, an actor, passed away at the age of 43 from colorectal cancer. Chadwick Boseman is... A spectacular actor. I really, I really enjoyed his movies. Um, I watched, uh, I watched the movie Marshall and thought it was stellar. I thought his performance was just fantastic. And I was also a fan of the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe, but in particular, the Black Panther movie. I enjoyed it a great deal. He was a terrific actor. And it seems like uh, from all the things that have been written about him, he's also a very kind and generous person. And his passing away was a deep loss especially for the cinema, but for all of us who enjoyed following his work and particularly those who he touched in in their personal lives. I went on Twitter in the hours and the days that followed um, the passing of Chadwick Boseman, um, and I saw you know many people having heartfelt tributes, but I also saw something that I see often, which is all too common, which is when a young person dies of cancer, people naturally and instinctively think, boy, what could we have done to stop this? What could we have done that might have saved his life? And when it comes to an individual, it's very difficult to know. You know, Chadwick Boseman, it appears he passed away at the age of 43. Um, The account put forth by um, his family and friends was that he was initially diagnosed with stage three colon cancer in 2016. um, And he passed away in 2020. Um, Some observers have pointed out that there was a photo of him several months ago where he appeared to look rather thin. Um, And there were a number of untoward comments made about his appearance, which just is a perpetual reminder that one should really never comment about anyone else's appearance. Um, One doesn't know what they're going through. Um, And I think, you know, nobody knows a lot about the medical care otherwise. I mean, it's likely for stage three colon cancer in 2016, he underwent a surgical resection. It's very likely that he underwent 
full Fox adjuvant chemotherapy as one would do for a stage three diagnosis. It's possible that he had a, a good period of time in between that before he had recurrent disease. When he did have recurrent disease, recurrent now metastatic disease, initially stage three, but now recurrent metastatic, um, it's very likely he had an aggressive phenotype and it, and ultimately it resulted in his untimely passing at the age of 43. One of the things that was raised perpetually was the crying need for colorectal cancer screening and that had we done it potentially earlier and sooner um, that, you know, maybe we would have averted this death. And I guess I wanted to talk about colon cancer screening because I think it's an important topic to discuss. So what should you know? I mean, I think you need to know that there are a number of different colon cancer screening modalities. There's fecal occult blood test, and then there's FIT, which is an immunohistochemical test of the stool. And FOBT is a stool-based test. FOBT and FIT, they don't improve outcomes in and of themselves. They prompt the selection of someone for an interrogation of their colon, either through flexible sigmoidoscopy or a full colonoscopy, typically the full colon if you do have a positive FIT or FOBT. They're a screening test for a screening test, really. There are also other screening tests. You could perform a flexible sigmoidoscopy every five years, which can interdict on early, perhaps pre-neoplastic lesions in the descending colon. You can also perform colonoscopy every 10 years. And then there's some new things like a blood-based cancer screening test, the SEPTIN-9 test, which we have written about myself and Ravi Parikh in uh, JAMA. There are a number of screening tests. And the, and the USPSTF says that you ought to get a screening test. It doesn't matter which one. Any test is better than no test. Now, that, of course, is something that I disagree with. If one test is better than another test, but you tell people that any test is better than no test, it's possible you may get people who otherwise would not take a test to take the least invasive test. For instance, you take someone who wouldn't be tested and now they're getting a blood-based test. That's possible. But it's also likely you take someone who would have gotten a flexig or colonoscopy and you get them to take a blood-based test instead, which may even erode outcomes. So the entire mantra that any test is better than no test, I think that is more questionable than has been allowed. I think somebody could easily write a paper ripping that idea to shreds. Um, there are some tests that have better data than other tests. So let's just go through the data real quick. You know, FOBT has randomized control trial data showing a reduction in death from colon cancer. The Minnesota study, the FOBT study, had a long-term 30-year follow-up in the New England Journal of Medicine where it showed, interestingly, that although there was a sustained reduction in death from colon cancer, there was no all-cause mortality benefit in that study. And those Kaplan-Meier curves for all-cause mortality were superimposable for FOBT. Now, some people say, well, you got to die of something eventually, and that's why there's no all-cause mortality benefit. People who say that are, frankly, they're not very smart. Because when you look at a Kaplan-Meier curve and they're superimposable and the hazard ratio is 1.01, that means that there's no improvement in survival, not at the end of the time period, but at any point in the time period. Not only you got to die of something, but that at every moment in time, people who did option A versus option B did not appear to be living longer. It's really a damning indictment of the inability of a test to improve all-cause survival. So people who say the reason we don't have survival benefits in cancer screening trials is because you got to die of something eventually, those people either don't have even a rudimentary understanding of survival analysis or they're being intentionally deceptive, and I don't know which is worse. Um, either way, they should probably stop talking, probably forever about screening, because they got a lot of reading to do. Fecal immunohistochemical testing, or the FIT test, is a good test. 
Um, it has better test characteristics than FOBT, but its survival benefits, its reduction in death from colorectal cancer, are only inferred through what it might do if it were used in lieu of FOBT. But I believe that inference is actually pretty fair, that if you're going to get a FOBT card, your likelihood of coming back for follow-up to get a colonoscopy is probably the same as if you use a FIT test. Now then, there's, of course, um, stool-based DNA test. It has some people believe better test characteristics, but I believe that study doesn't really prove that at all because they're not asking what the sensitivity and specificity is over a period of time. They're asking it at a very early time interval. And of course, colon cancer is a repeat thing. You're a repeat customer. And so it really doesn't matter what happens in the first year, two years, three years. You want to know which strategy is better over a 10-year, 15-year horizon. Flexible sigmoidoscopy has terrific data. It probably has the best data of Maybe any any cancer screening test, but certainly the commonly used cancer screening test. It's got terrific data. It has a number of randomized controlled trials that show a reduction in death from colon cancer. And in a pooled analytic estimate in the Annals of Internal Medicine, there is a reduction in all-cause death. It is really a terrific, terrific screening test. Flexible sigmoidoscopy is more than a screening test. It's a test where you directly intervene on precancerous lesions. You're not just looking for them. You're clipping potential polyps. Of course colonoscopy has never had a randomized control trial assessing it, and it now has two ongoing studies. I look forward to the study led by Lieberman and colleagues that will come out. It is a comparison of FIT test versus colonoscopy, a VA study. I believe it is fully accrued and that the answers are imminent, and that's going to be a terrific study. There's another study. I believe the PI is Doug Robertson, but someone correct me if I'm wrong, um, that also looks at a, a stool uh, based testing versus colonoscopy, and that is also ongoing. So I look forward to information of colonoscopy. I believe that colonoscopy will be at least as good as flexible sigmoidoscopy. Will it be better? I don't know. I think that there have been disputing propensity score observational studies. Some suggest it might be better. Some suggest it might not be better. The real fundamental question is right-sided lesions. Do they have the same precancerous biology? Are they the same likelihood of forming polyps that are amenable to clipping that can be seen by a GI doctor? Or perhaps they are driven by different genetic mutations that are more likely to result in sessile polyps that may be missed by the operator and that are less amenable to a reduction in colon cancer death. I think we're going to learn the answer to that question with this randomized controlled trial study or at least get some clues. So I think that's always been sort of the backdrop of this. The other thing worth saying is that all of the randomized controlled trials of colon cancer screening enroll people typically at the age of 50 or above. There are no trials for people 45 to 50. There are no trials for people 40. There are no trials for people 35. And there are no trials for people 30. The next thing to say, we have seen, I think many providers have seen, and that there is population data to suggest that there has been a slight uptick in the incidence of early onset colon rectal cancer, which is typically defined as colon cancer before the age of 50. Um, some of us are well acquainted with cases of people in their 20s, 29. We've all seen those sort of heartbreaking cases of colon cancer at these very early ages. When it comes to early onset colorectal cancer, there is a fraction of that with known hereditary cancer syndromes, such as the HNPC syndrome, such as familial adenomatous polyposis. Those are really well-established syndromes, um, and 
you know, there are different treatment strategies used. Um, when it comes to someone who doesn't know if they have a familial syndrome, whether or not you ought to screen them for something like HNPCC or the Lynch syndrome, um, you know, there are a couple of criteria. There's Amsterdam 1, Amsterdam 2, and Bethesda. Bethesda, of course, gets a little bit loosey goosey with the diagnostic criteria in an effort to be sensitive, but they, what they gain in sensitivity, they lose in specificity. Um, I, I personally like the Amsterdam criteria. I like Amsterdam 2. Um, but, you know, you have, your, you have your own pick. But those are some, you know, good heuristics, rules of thumb criteria to help you decide who ought to be screened. But I think it's worth remembering that maybe only 20, 25%, some people might say 30%, but I think it's roughly in that ballpark. I know some people say 50% and you know we can have a longer argument about it, but I don't think it's 50%. I think it's more in the 25% to 30% ballpark um, of early onset colorectal cancer is driven by a known hereditary mutation. And then the rest of early onset colorectal cancer are people who you wouldn't be thinking of Lynch syndrome. You wouldn't be thinking of FAP. That's just the reality of it. So I, I just want to paint a little bit of the backdrop of colorectal cancer screening. Um, and, oh, and let me give you one more piece of backdrop. So one more piece of backdrop. For somebody who does meet the criteria to be screened for colorectal cancer, somebody who is between the ages of, say, 50 to 69, who's really that central cohort in the majority of randomized control trials assessing cancer screening, and let's say... You're talking about flexible sigmoidoscopy, which has the strongest evidence both for disease-specific and all-cause mortality. Um, for such a person, what percent of colon cancer deaths are averted? The answer is, even if that person gets all the screening, you might see a reduction of 20, 25, 30, 35% reduction in colorectal cancer death, but that's about it. 60%, 70% of colorectal cancer deaths will still occur in someone even though they had screening we will find out for colonoscopy. But the same is true for FOBT. The majority of people will die of colon cancer who otherwise would with screening. Screening is an improvement, but it is not a miracle. It doesn't take it from, you know, six per 10,000 to zero per 10,000. It takes it from six to four. You know, that's the kind of effect size we're talking about here. It's a relative reduction. It's good, but it's not a 100% reduction. Okay, you got to know that. that every screening test, even if one were to put aside the all-cause mortality debate, which I am very much a part of that debate, a debate that suggests that we don't know for sure cause-specific death is not a product of miscoding and is not offset by off-target death. We don't know that for sure for most things. We do for FlexSig, but we don't know that for sure for most things. Even putting that debate aside and saying we're willing to accept cause-specific death, you got to admit the reality, which is two-thirds of cause-specific deaths, three-quarters of cause-specific deaths, you're not doing anything about. You're not doing about. You're not doing anything about the majority of deaths, okay? That's just to put it in perspective. It's not a panacea. It's not a miracle. It's a modest reduction in cause-specific death. Most of these screening tests don't have a reduction in all-cause mortality. Flexig does. And a really elegant meta-analysis that came out as a letter in the Annals of Internal Medicine. They did something nice with the Norwegian data and separated it out by cohort. Anyway, I won't bore you with all that. I want to talk about the big picture here. So, unfortunately, a terrific actor, a really seems, by all counts, terrific person, Chadwick Boseman, passed away of colon cancer at the age of 43. He was initially diagnosed with stage three cancer at the age of 39. Nobody knows if he had a family history that would have warranted um, thinking about hereditary syndrome, but it's, it's more than likely that he didn't. It's more than likely he didn't, just the, just the raw numbers. Majority of people with early onset colon cancer do not have such a history. 
We saw many people saying that all we need to do to save people like Chadwick Boseman is to screen early and screen often. And that is what I think is wrong. I think it's wrong. And I think that kind of message does a disservice in a few ways. One, although the American Cancer Society lowered the initial age of screening from 50 to 45, they did so based on no randomized controlled data at all. They did so based on modeling exercises. Well, modeling exercises sometimes think a hurricane is going to hit Miami and it doesn't, and it hits New York City. Modeling exercises sometimes predict that 2 million people in America will die of COVID-19. And although many people have died, it did not appear to be as much as the modeling exercise. My point is modeling exercises aren't always right, particularly modeling exercises with cancer screening. They can be off the mark and we only have modeling exercises. That is not actually sufficient to change a policy for people 40 to 45. It's a contentious recommendation. It is not a strong recommendation. There are a lot of people who don't agree with it. I believe that if you want to make that change, you need to do a randomized control trial. Now, the people who believe that early onset cancer screening might have saved somebody um, like Chadwick Boseman, they really have to explain to me what they are after. Do they think that every 30-year-old, 35-year-old should undergo colon cancer screening? And um, given that the majority of early onset colon cancer is not due to a known familial or hereditary syndrome, do they think that this should just be offered um, broadly? Is that what they think? It's easy to believe that a flexible sigmoidoscopy that works so triumphantly well when you're 55, 60 is going to work well when you're 30 to 35, but that might not be the case. We do know that there are some genomic differences in early onset colon cancer. There's some nice review articles on this topic. There are not many, but there are some. There are also some key differences in tumor infiltrating lymphocytes and the immune response in this age group. Do we know that these people are forming precancerous polyps that are going to progress and kill them? Or are they forming low sessile lesions that are not going to be detected on cancer screening anyway? And that if you subject every 30-year-old to cancer screening where the incidence is super, super low, you're going to be perforating a lot more colons than you are saving lives. Very likely that that is the case, that you're going to be doing a net disservice. And yet, many armchair doctors and pundits promulgated the idea that everyone ought to get screened at 45. Is that the case? Well, the American Cancer Society thinks so. The American Cancer Society thinks a lot of things that a lot of other societies don't think and a lot of other experts don't think because one of the goals of the American Cancer Society is to keep the American Cancer Society in business. And that's not one of the goals of all the other, all the other agencies. That data is weak. That data is very weak. I'm not sure that that, is, that that should be a universal recommendation. And certainly, is there data to do it at 40? To do it at 45? In the absence of meeting Bethesda criteria, in the absence of HNPC, in the absence of FAP? I don't think so. I don't think there is that data. And if you simply assume that those studies would be positive were we to run them, you are contributing to the problem. You're the worst thing possible for people with early onset colorectal cancer. If you want to champion these people who are dying of this disease, call for the randomized study. Do the power calculation. Run the randomized study. We do not help people. We do not help people by assuming more screening is better and would have worked earlier. We help people by doing research that tests whether or not more screening is better and would have worked earlier. That's the difference. And so people who don't understand the topic, I understand why it would be natural to believe that one would have averted this poor gentleman's death. But even if this gentleman was 55, and even if he did get screening, you know, two-thirds of that glass, two-thirds of that colon cancer is still going to kill people. You're only helping it a third.
And now that he's out of that age group, and you don't know anything about whether or not he would have qualified by Bethesda criteria for, for Lynch syndrome screening. You don't know anything about that. And I just want to make a little bit of a side. We really don't have, we have really bad data um, about whether or not and when and how often to screen people, even with the known hereditary syndromes. We got to be honest. Some of this is retrospective data comparing people with Lynch syndrome who were screened to people with Lynch syndrome who were not screened. But, you know, there are lots of reasons why a 30-year-old who's told they have Lynch syndrome and decides not to be screened might not be screened. That might not be the same person you ought to be comparing it to. There are tons of potential biases in these studies. They don't really prove. If you really care about early onset hereditary genetic syndromes, you got to ask for more studies, not just more screening. You know, we all know the Fraumani patients, P53 loss, they get so many diagnostic tests and surgeries and cuts. We don't know for sure that all that stuff is benefiting them. You know, we're not really, we're not really championing them when we just do more things without really scientifically assessing that. The same way we're not helping people when we just give 70,000 people plasma or 5,000 people anticoagulation without testing it with COVID-19. We don't help people when we don't, when we don't collect information. We are just as ignorant as we were when we started the study. We're just more morally arrogant, but we're just as scientifically ignorant. And that is a problem. So my general feeling about this is that, I don't know, every every time there's an episode like this where something bad happens, there's a natural human tendency to think, what could we have done differently? The hardest thing to accept is that sometimes the answer is nothing. You could have done everything differently and this outcome would still have occurred. The other thing to accept that's very hard, but very true, sometimes that in the wake of something bad, you can institute a policy in the hopes that you will deter that bad event. And you may even deter that bad event a little bit, but you're going to hurt a whole bunch of other people a lot more. You might have more perforated colons. You might have more people die that way than you are saving because the incidence is so low, but the risks don't, the risks don't drop as fast as the incidence drops. The risks are more constant. And thus there is a trade-off with screening. Screening is not a panacea. And then the other thing is, you know, the real holy grail of colon cancer and saving lives would actually not be a test that catches everyone who's destined to progress early. That's not the holy grail. The holy grail is you have a drug that you can give anyone who has colon cancer and it's like a Gleevec. It fixes their whole survival. That's the holy grail. It's actually, there are actually several advantages to that than, than the quest to identify early lesions and cut them out. Somebody was telling me, you know, is it possible that blood-based broader genetic testing will, you know, help in this situation? I said, who knows, but we need randomized controlled trials because once you identify blood-based lesions that may identify pre-malignant lesions, what are you going to do about it? You're going to resect people's colons? You're going to try to figure out where in the organ it is? What if the signal is coming from some cancer, but you don't know what organ it is? There are a lot of challenges. And I think that people underestimate these challenges. So my takeaway here is that, you know, just a terrific actor and fantastic person died. And, and that is very unfortunate. Um, and colon cancer screening, particularly flexible sigmoidoscopy, when administered between the ages of 50 and 69, is a good screening test with robust data. But everything in between those two things, all the other statements, they require a lot more evidence to support. And that is what smart people would do when they're really committed to doing good in the world is not to just make leaps, not to become advocates, but to become scientists and ask if what we think might help actually does help. And I think that's the difference between folks you should take credibly on social media and folks you should not take credibly. I have to discuss 
a couple tweets, but here's one tweet. And I don't really want to pick too much on the person who said it, but let's just say this is a person with a hundred grand plus followers who used to run a major federal agency, very big name person. This tweet is dated on August 30th, August 30th, quote, widespread mask wearing should be promoted as a quote, new normal in communities until the risk of COVID infection is extremely low. This, I guess, nonprofit group that I run released a new guide to support them with some university on how policymakers can effectively encourage the use of masks. Click on the link. And then you click on the link and it says, we have a new report on promoting mask wearing, a policymaker's guide. And it is 18 pages long. And let's take you through that report. Here's what it says. So first it says, we should all wear masks. They're really, really good. The evidence that supports it is terrific. Here's the evidence that supports it. It's not so terrific, but they say it's terrific. Okay, let's allow that. Best practices for mask wearing. Everyone should wear masks. They should wear it maximally effective. They should use the right material and not the ones that are as open as, as knitted stockings. Okay, they have a little picture of what wakes. You have to wear it with a good fit. Make sure you're not blowing air out the sides. Okay, good. Promoting mask wearing with policies. Rules should be clear and comprehensive. Oh, really? Oh, thanks for that. They should be clear rules. There shouldn't be really confusing and difficult rules. Okay. Um, exceptions should be limited. Oh, of course. When you want everyone to do something, it should be limited exemptions. Okay. Um, the mandates should be issued by the most appropriate government authority. Oh, okay. It shouldn't be issued by the authority that's not uh, that's not warranted. And violations should have, they give an example case study where there are violations, uh, sanctions for noncompliance, engaging businesses in promoting, government should tailor messages, blah, 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 uh, measuring mask use in the community. What's my point here? My point is, this is useless stuff, man. This is useless stuff. Okay. Um, <laughs> you're not helping anybody. You're doing... Some bullshit tweet that's going to get, you know, a few hundred retweets, hundreds of likes, preach to the choir. You're not helping anybody. This August 30th, the mask issue has become a disaster, just a disaster issue. It is so polarized, so politically polarized. You walk around cities in the South, South Carolina, people, there's no masks in sight. You walk around liberal cities, everyone's wearing a mask. It's so polarized. It is so divided by political lines. It's been, the discussion has been derailed and destroyed. And hopefully on a future episode, I'm going to get Margaret McCartney to talk about the evidence. But it's been, it's been so divisive and divided and people have made up their minds whether or not they're going to do it or not. And, you know, you putting out a tweet on August 30th and issuing some guideline, some 18-page document that's all color-coded, but frankly doesn't say anything useful at all. Oh, you, uh, I'll grant you the premise. People should do this. It works. And we should encourage people to do it with minimal exemptions. Oh, really? Oh, that's a rocket science idea. Terrific. Oh, and we should have penalties if they don't do it. Oh, really? Do you have any evidence that those penalties won't backfire in your face and create just a massive, massive unrest situation? Do you really want to enforce this? In the process of enforcing the mandate, might you actually increase transmission? Because you got to approach somebody who's not wearing a mask, who probably feels kind of defensive about it, and they may be primed and ready to fight, and you're going to tell them that they're going to get a, a, a ticket, and they might get really, really angry 
angry. And now you have an angry person without a mask on. What sense does this make? Do you have any data to suggest that this is how government should do it? That this is the best strategy? Now that America has been so divided on this issue, you don't know anything. You have no data at all. You're not even trying to collect data. You're just trying to pull out some useless, useless guide that's just preaching to the choir. It's not going to help any single person. People have already decided. How are you going to actually solve the problem? You're just going to give some advice that may even put gasoline on a fire? I mean, there is a real good question right now, which is how in a world where people have such strong political identities tied to wearing a mask, can you move the needle even one millimeter and get a person who otherwise wouldn't wear one to wear one? And to do that, you need to do randomized studies of different strategies and policies and education and campaigns. You can't put out an 18-page garbage PDF file that just says a bunch of stupid things that are very likely to cut the other way. And if you were perfectly honest and we lived in a functioning society, instead of people taking dramatic polls where they extol benefits that have not been shown in carefully done studies, we might have had a commitment to issue these mandates in a staggered way so that we might actually learn something, which is what Margaret McCartney wrote in a beautiful paper in the BMJ, and I hope to have her on the podcast in the future, um, to actually talk about how evidence generation is not the antithesis of doing something. It is doing something in many cases. This packet is a preaching to the choir packet. It's a useless thing. And that a smart person who ran a federal agency would put out a useless packet like this really gives me pause because my takeaway is this person is just is just clamoring for the retweets. This person doesn't actually want to solve the problem because the problem is a very difficult problem, which is now that you have beat on about this issue so much, you have made it a political issue because the people beating on about it are also beating on about why they don't like Republican policies. So they've wedded the two together to some degree. They beat on about it, beat on about it, beat on about it. It's become so wedded to political beliefs, which is wedded to people's identity. And now you want to go in and you want to give advice on what cities and states and municipalities should do. And you have no idea if what any of this advice is going to get people to actually adopt the change, or if instead you're going to get somebody screaming at the top of their lungs at 10 other people in proximity without a mask on, potentially spreading the virus, you're going to get police brought in and you're going to get a pressure cooker situation in 2020 America on the cusp of a national election. You have no idea what you're doing. You're just, just, <laughs> I don't even know how to put it, why I think this is so stupid and, and just so self-serving. I mean, I just don't think the people doing this are really committed to actually what's in the public interest. They just want, you know, to preach to their own little demographics and choir. Um, it, you, sometimes in life, you reach a stalemate where you're not going to be able to get people to do what you want to do. And then the question is, in an effort to get the recalcitrant, resistant person to do something, what are you willing to do? How much? You're going to give them a $100 ticket and give them a misdemeanor, as this packet calls for? You think that's going to end well? You think that's going to end well right now in 2020? Where society is literally a pressure cooker getting higher and higher pressure? You think that's going to end well? I don't think it's going to end well. And I think if you really wanted to think about this, you would have to think about strategies that can be tested to test them at a regional level and to see what can be scaled up and, what's in, and what can be done in a way that doesn't lead to the pot blowing off the rice cooker. I think that's what you got to do. So I think that this is a dumb idea, a dumb tweet. They should have, if they want to put out a, a packet like this, you should have done it five months ago. Um, I just see, I just see no, no value to it at all.
So on that positive note, we'll turn to the next discussion item. An oncologist tweeted recently, quote, 86-year-old metastatic lung cancer with a malignant pleural effusion, ECOG zero. PDL one is 80%. Foundation one shows exon 14 met, NF1 positive, NF kappa B positive, TET2 positive, KRAS G13D positive, RET. What would be your first line treatment? Pembro or capmantinib, which is the exon 14 drug? Well, this is an interesting question. It's an 86-year-old patient. Their performance status is good. Their PD-1 qualifies them for pembrolizumab alone. Their exon 14 met status, although discounted by, there's also a concurrent RAS mutation, but their exon 14 met status would suggest that you could administer capmantinib. What would you do? Some people say pembro. Some people say the met drug. One person says you could give this person a lower dose chemotherapy because iotoxicity can be very bad at an elderly age group. It's another fair point. Um, one person asks, what's the RET rearrangement, mutation or fusion? And it's just an alteration. It's a point mutation. One person points out what caught my eye, where is this, there's an unusual combo here, which is RAS and MET, and that this may mean that the person is resistant to MET therapy. One person says, give IO frontline and then reserve the MET for second line. And then one person says, how about both? Reduce doses. How about both? And that is a crazy thing. And in response, another oncologist writes, given the toxicity issues of checkpoint inhibitors with several targeted therapies, I would be wary of potential toxicity and disinclined to treat concurrently off of trial. It's hard to defend if things go poorly. And then this person writes, especially wary of cobbling together a novel combination in an 86-year-old, basically running a phase one study. And this person writes the most true line of all, the line between creativity and malpractice can be thin. Indeed, the line between creativity and malpractice can be very, very thin. And that is what this thread illustrates, is that the very, very thin line between creativity and malpractice might be being crossed in the situation if someone were to give a novel TKI and Pembro together in the absence of phase one studies. Another expert writes, this could be extremely dangerous. Do not mix IO with TKI unless a trial specifically finds it safe and effective. This is actually a pretty good point. And then this person doubles down. We are going to disagree. In a study I ran, we were able to do this by dose reducing. We saw no acute mortality starting with dose reductions. <sighs> I don't know what to say. I mean, I think that this kind of thread illustrates what we're dealing with in oncology. We're dealing with a situation where folks, you know, we've approved a drug based on an uncontrolled study with the, um, with the MET drug. And we have an 86-year-old in front of us. And it's not enough to give one drug that has no control data or another drug that has randomized data that is not very applicable to 86-year-olds. Somebody wants to give both of the drugs together. <laughs> That's crazy. That's not how you practice oncology. If you wanted to do that, you got to do a phase one trial first and show that it's safe, at least in a younger population, before you start playing on the island of Dr. Moreau and inventing whatever combination you want to invent. That's not oncology. That's improvisational oncology, which is also known as the very thin line between creativity and malpractice. And I think 
I think I couldn't have said it better myself. So on that positive note, we'll shift to the next topic. So the folks from Mount Sinai published the updated analysis of their 5,000-person observational study of full-dose anticoagulation versus prophylactic-dose anticoagulation. Now, of course, it looks like it looks like a null study that there's no clear difference, there's no clear winner. And many people, including the study authors, recognize that I guess we got to do a randomized control trial. And there is one of many, there's now like maybe 20 ongoing. Freedom 19. And I said, I would have loved to publish this observational study in the COVID issue of my new journal, the Journal of Observational Studies Athwart Randomized Control Trials. And of course, some of the authors gave pushback. One said that I was a hater, a hater, apparently, since I, I don't know why I would be a hater, because apparently I was aspiring to be middle author on a useless observational study. I don't think so, but that's what this person thinks I'm hating on. I um, am not a big fan of observational studies that deplete the entire population of COVID patients in New York City in a pandemic, because that means that there are far fewer people to do a randomized trial on. And now, lo and behold, New York City has very few patients to run a randomized trial on, so they can call for randomized trials all they want. They don't have any patients to randomize, and cases are declining. It's very possible, hopefully, God willing, there won't be enough cases to randomize. That's not a good look when you've just taken 5,000 people and put them in an uncontrolled study. And then I got a interesting message from the former commissioner of the FDA. Credit where credit is due. Observational study raises a hypothesis and RCTs are being done to confirm or refute. And I thought to myself, that's the silliest thing I've ever, and I thought to myself, that's the silliest thing I've ever heard. I write, gotta disagree. The hypothesis that maybe we should give a COVID-19 patient who's in the hospital full dose instead of prophylactic dose anticoagulation, that didn't require a 5,000-person observational study. In fact, all that required was the very first paper, the first papers from China and the Netherlands, that suggested there might be an increased risk of thromboembolism. The moment someone said, hmm, is there an increased risk of thromboembolism? You have enough! to test the hypothesis of whether or not you should crank up the anticoagulation the moment there was the suggestion in observational data sets that thrombosis appeared to be a little bit higher. Did we know for sure? No, but that doesn't matter really. If the thromboembolism risk is at least as high or higher, maybe even if it's a little bit lower, it might even be possible that in this particular disease or malady, the full-dose anticoagulation strategy is better. It's also possible it's not better at all. That hypothesis is not a very hard hypothesis. And in fact, you don't need any safety testing because we already give these patients full dose anticoagulation when they have a clot. So you can give them full dose anticoagulation when they don't have a clot. You already have the safety data you need. We're used to giving full dose anticoagulation ICU patients. You can run the randomized trial immediately. And then I said, in my tweet, an observational study of 100, 200 people, okay, sure, but 5,000 people depleting all of the patients during a pandemic while declining to participate in ongoing studies as Dr. Fuster admits in the Linked Jack podcast, that's a missed opportunity. It's a missed opportunity. And I don't understand why more people don't say what's so obvious, which is that you can think of whatever excuse you want. Oh, somebody said to me, 
did you call the authors and ask them what they thought of the study? I said, no, I didn't call the authors. You think the physician in chief of Mount Sinai is going to take a call from an associate professor who's going to ask them tough questions about their study? These trialists, they don't even reply to basic emails about like, what was the demographics of their study when you have those kinds of questions? You think they're going to take my call? And I, you think I have the time to wait around, waste my time sending emails and cold calling people? And what do I want to hear their perspective for? They've already articulated their perspective. And there is nothing one can articulate that would justify 5,000 person uncontrolled study. There's nothing that one can articulate. I've already heard his articulation. It's evident in the podcast anyone can listen to. I can't imagine what somebody might say that would absolve themselves of the responsibility of squandering patients while declining to participate in RCTs, as was admitted on the podcast. I can't imagine what they would say. Moreover, me tweeting, I'm not the New York Times. I'm not doing a news story about it. If I was doing a news story, I would call him. I'm just somebody who has analyzed all of the available data that is sufficient for me to make my judgment. And I'm telling you my judgment. You don't like my judgment? You can say your judgment on your little Twitter feed. You don't like my judgment on my podcast? You can make your own podcast, which I'm sure is going to be god awful because if you don't have the ability to analyze this question correctly, why on earth would you make a podcast anyone wants to listen to? Um, but you're free to make your own podcast. And in fact, he did make a podcast where he made the best case argument for why this absolute foolish study was a good idea. He made his argument and I'm making my argument on my podcast. My podcast probably has a lot more listeners than his podcast because it is poorly delivered and has flawed content. And my podcast is, I believe, better delivered and has better content. It's up to listeners to decide. Um, they'll vote with their feet. And I'm not an institution. I'm not New York Times. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not claiming to give you equal airtime for your nonsensical view that 5,000 person observational studies are good. And, 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 and it's, it, it, and it's a cheap and empty and, and, and empty tactic to say after you have squandered all the patients in the midst of a pandemic, well, now we should do a randomized study. You missed your opportunity to do it because you were taking everybody and putting them in an uncontrolled experiment. And now we have no useful data which is the worst thing we could do. It's a disservice to COVID-19 patients. I'm not even sure I understand why any IRB university would allow someone to give full dose anticoagulation to thousands of people without any proof that it helps them. They're not answering any question at all. Who's allowing these things to happen? It's a total failure. It's a, just emblematic of all of the failures. I was out there front and center from day one saying, don't give hydroxychloroquine off study, do these things on study, answer the questions as quickly as possible. Everyone wants to ignore the lessons of medical reversal, which is that when you do things like this, you very often put your foot in it and you have to pay the price on the back end and you do a disservice to patients. So I guess the theme of this monologue we've seen from colon cancer to the tweet about um, how, uh, how governors can mandate masks in August 30th, on August 30th, how you should ticket people and how you should get people to have be compliant with masks. On August 30th, um, the, the, the person who says we should combine two drugs that have never been combined safely together in the absence of a phase one. And uh, these people who do the large observational study and not a randomized trial, but then they say do a randomized trial at the end. The theme across all these are people to different degrees who are well-intentioned. I mean, I believe that the people who think we should screen for colon cancer at the age of 15 years old, I don't know how, I mean, I, I'm just guessing. I don't know how they, I don't know how low they want to go. Uh, the people who want to screen for colon cancer the moment you get your driver's license. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how low they want to go, really. Um, but there are people who want to go low. 
the people who want to give unproven combos, the people who want to create elaborate PDF files to disseminate about how you can get people to wear masks that are based on no credible evidence that will actually work in the climate of 2020 America, August 30th, which is a pressure cooker and you don't know what you're doing if you start monkeying with it and start creating strict penalties it could easily blow the lid off the pot you have no clue what you're doing or what you're saying and you're literally only tweeting it to get retweets and likes from the same like-minded people who are totally segregated on twitter not talking to each other and not actually in pursuit of the truth and Finally, the anticoagulation people who think what they're doing is, a, is, a, is, is helping people. All of these parties believe they're helping people, and all of them are probably doing them a disservice. They're actually hurting the constituencies they hope to help because they do not think correctly about any of these issues. They're all wrong, and that is it. And that is just a factual assessment of where we are. As, as a good friend likes to say, a great disappointment as life is to learn that many people who should be smart enough to know better do not know better. And that is a great disappointment in life. Last topic before we go to our two interviews. On a prior episode of this podcast, I found a researcher who published more papers than may potentially be humanly possible. And since then, some people called me and somebody called me to say that, you know, some universities set up uh, data sets and then they charge people authorship to use any of their data. And then they put all these people on the papers, even if those people don't do anything substantive for the paper. This was just a general point about some places that do that. And I thought, mm, that's interesting. That's an interesting general point. And then somebody else called me to make a different point, which was this, which was VP. You were really hard on that practice. And you know what? I agree with you. I agree wholeheartedly with you. That practice is a corrosive practice. Um, that practice sets bad expectations. And actually, since I delivered that podcast about that person, I was talking to someone else. And um, I made the point that just like when children are exposed to airbrushed photos of men and women, they get unrealistic body image. Researchers, when they're exposed to researchers publishing more papers than possible, get unrealistic career image. They have a false aspiration. Anyway, this person brings it back and they say, VP, you, you were right to fault this person. But what I wish you had done in your podcast was actually talk about, you know, why are you still in the game? Like, what do you see as the upsides? Like, you you know, you avoid this assiduously. Uh, paint the picture of someone who's doing it right. And I thought to myself, you know, this this person is right. Friend of the show, Chris Booth, is right. Um, that, you know, let me paint the picture of a different researcher, the kind of researcher I do admire. And I didn't tell him I was going to do this, but you know what? I'm going to pick Chris Booth, the guy who prompted me to do that, because I actually do admire Chris Booth a lot. Um... Let's just talk about Chris Booth's life. Um, Chris Booth is, um, and I'll let him do the talking about this, but he's a big believer in work-life balance. And um, he, you know, one of his mantras is always that work is important, but life is always more important. And, um, you know, he told me something somebody told him, which is that nobody's ever on their deathbed wishing that they had worked more. Uh, and that's true. And so you have to have that balance. And so Booth embodies that. You know, every time I'm calling Booth, um, you know, he's, his cell phone reception is dwindling because he's up in the in the Arctic Circle on some canoe trip or something. You know, he's always doing some great outdoors activity. And, uh, you know, it's it's terrific to see that. And, um, you know, when he commutes to work, he sails, he, he rides his bike, he runs, and he skates on the frozen Lake Ontario. I mean, that is pretty cool. Um, and, you know, he knows his outdoors stuff, which is uh, why we enjoyed the waterfall hike in season one of this podcast. Um, next. 
Booth is a consummate clinician. And, you know, he's somebody who's reminded me a couple times that I should emphasize even more on this podcast how much I believe he's somebody who reminds me to articulate a little bit better that human side of medicine and how, you know, probably the best thing about being someone's oncologist is gradually building their trust in you and and treasuring that trust and using that trust to help walk them through the difficult situations and to be with them and sometimes just to sit quiet in the room while they process something, think about the next question. That that human side of oncology is really so much of what makes it so appealing and satisfying. Booth does that expertly from everything I've heard. I've never actually shattered him in the patient room, but I've had my moles have been in there. They say he's a really good doctor and, and people think really highly of him. And that's certainly reflected in, in everyone you talk to. The next thing, mentoring trainees. Booth, um, you know, he's got uh, he's got a terrific circle of sort of trainees that he mentors. And and I will also sort of say the other thing he does that's so so stellar is um, boy, even even how, I didn't even see it coming, but I'm a booth mentee too. He started to mentor me. He's, of course, a few years ahead of me, um, maybe more than a few. I don't know how old you are, Chris. Um, uh, but but he does. He he um, you know he's he's a, he's a friendly person, and he approaches you as a friend, and then you get to know him, and and then you know you find yourself confiding in him about difficult situations you're in, and he starts giving you advice, and it's really good advice. And he listens to the podcast, and then he calls you and he says, you know, just a few things. Talk about what it means to be a good academic leader. A good, a good researcher. I was like, you're right. It, it's Chris, you know, and, and he gives me all this sort of professional advice, how to advocate for myself, how to think about things and his research. You know, I was telling, I used the example of a different attending, but I was telling him that there are some researchers who don't publish 120 articles in their peak year. They publish the articles that they publish. And you know, they publish those articles because they have the flavor of that researcher. They have the character of that researcher. They have the smell of that researcher. You know, they have that je ne sais quoi. They have that part of the researcher built into it. And Chris Booth papers have it. You know, you know a Chris Booth paper because he's extremely sort of open-minded and altruistic about global oncology because he really cares about if we're measuring what matters. He cares about tolerability and safety. He thinks about things from the patient perspective. You know when you read a Chris Booth paper, this is not a big data set, data dredge, garbage, post hoc, trialist, garbage paper. It's a Chris Booth paper. You can feel the way he infused his character and personality into the paper. It carries. When he writes an article, you feel it. You feel his presence in the words when you know somebody. You don't feel that in these empty trialists who just put their name on papers, these cookie cutter papers looking at post hoc analysis of whatever trial or whatever database they preside over. You don't feel their influence. In fact, the, tr the papers are also empty and meaningless. They don't really construct a broader narrative. And so to, to sort of hit head on what Chris wanted me to talk about is that there is this entity, this good academician. It still exists. There's like four of us left. We'll go to a dinner. We'll go to dinner sometime. But that's what, you know, if you aspire to be in the academy, that's what you have to aspire to be. I think you have to aspire to, you know, really help and empower people under you and in your circle who like may not even be quote unquote your mentee, but like me, you know, I'm a booth mentee, even if I didn't see it, I didn't even see how he did it. Um, but I, uh, you gotta, you know, you gotta do research that is honest to yourself. Don't put your name on things you didn't work on. I'm confident Chris would never do that. And, and you can tell because there's a flavor to his work. Um, you gotta really work on your clinical skills. You gotta really work on being a consummate clinician. 
And you got to try to advance the puck. You got to try to push the field forward a little bit in a way often that's best for patients, which is often counter to what vested interests want. And I think that's what it means to be a good academician. And Booth isn't the only one. I just picked on him because he was in my mind when we were talking recently. Um, you know, I think Tito Foho for me, Ian Tanock, Elizabeth Eisenhower, another ex- exceptional researcher at the NCI, Susan Bates, who's now at Columbia. I mean, we've all had sort of, of course, outside of oncology, you know, for me, the consummate academician, um, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the person who, when Michelangelo sculpts the, the sculpts, the sculpture of like the, the consummate academician, it's going to be Adam Sifu. Um, you know, you get, you get those people in your lives and you want to aspire to be like those people. And just like when children grow up looking at images of unrealistic bodies, they have unrealistic body image. And I'm not the expert on that, but so that's what I hear. Um, I think people who grow up looking at unrealistic career aspirations have unrealistic career image. And maybe we should try to reconcile that with good career image. And that there are downsides to the academy. But if your goal is, as my goal still is for the time being, to try to make progress on some of these issues of thinking better about drugs and devices and approval and how we practice medicine, it is a very powerful place to be. Um, and gives you a lot of tools and a lot of time to work on that. To say, for instance, write a book like Malignant, which I hope is a substantive contribution to that dialogue. So on that positive note, we got two great interviews for you. We got Jonathan Darrow about Vesepa and the patent litigation. And then I've got Toby Richards, and he's talking about a randomized control trial that is out today, the PREVENT study in The Lancet. You won't want to miss this. So stay tuned. I'm back in plenary session, joined via Zoom by Jonathan Darrow. Jonathan Darrow is a uh, lawyer and assistant professor at uh, Harvard University, and he is a member of the Portal Group. And he's joining us to talk about patent law and particularly one case. So, Jonathan, it's a pleasure to see you again. It's a pleasure to be here. So you've been with Portal how many years now? I started in 2014 formally, although I was uh, unofficially affiliated since 2010, approximately. I see. It's been a while now. And your interest, of course, is in regulatory law. But do you have a specific focus on patents or is that just one of the things you're interested in? So I did work as a patent attorney. I've been qualified since uh, 2001 and 2002 as an attorney and as a patent attorney, respectively. Um, My main interest is actually drug efficacy. That's what I did my research doctorate in. Mm -hmm. So it's actually been quite a while since I practiced patent law. Uh, I did spend two years at the federal circuit, which is the uh, appellate court that hears essentially all patent case uh, appeals in this country. Oh, wonderful. Really? Oh, so you have quite a bit of experience in patent law. I have some, sure. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, I hear it's a lucrative, it's a lucrative subset of the law. Is that fair to say? <laughs> I've never heard a physician say that. I guess it, it all, <laughs> it's all perspective. It all depends huh? on your frame of reference. <laughs> Maybe an academic physician would say that. Maybe not if I were in private practice, I wouldn't say that. Um, okay, so let's dive into this case. So I wonder if you might lay out a little bit sort of the question that uh, faces the court in this Amarin pharmaceutical case. So I guess I'll tell listeners a little bit of background. Uh, maybe we're talking about um, a compound called Vesepa, um, which is um, uh, a, 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 a slice of the 
fish oil. It's a certain type of fish oil. And unlike many fish oil studies in cardiovascular prevention, which were staggeringly negative, this is one that has eked out a positive result. And thus, it has been granted um, you know, FDA drug approval and uh, potentially a sizable market share. Um, of course, there's some issues with that trial. One of the things people always point out is that the control arm was it wasn't doing nothing. It was a fistful of mineral oil capsules, which um, may have induced some diarrhea and prevented some statin absorption. So the control arm might have been harmful. Um, we don't have a replication study, um, but that's really sort of the state of the science. There are a lot of doctors who believe that Vasepa um, is a useful drug. Um, and uh, But what's at stake in this case, of course, is the patents of Vasepa. So why don't you talk about that? Yeah, sure. So I'm going to limit my comments to uh, what was raised in the case and specifically what was addressed in the article by uh, Kerfman and colleagues. Yeah. Uh, but so uh, the, the drug in question, as you mentioned, is uh, Vesipa. I think it's called Vesipa. That's how the advertisements pronounce okay, it. Okay, maybe I. Sure. Uh, it was approved in 2012. Um, the generic name is Icosapentethyl. Uh, it also has another uh name icosapentanoic acid and that that's important because the abbreviation that i'm going to use is is epa and that's for the alternative name so the, the important thing to know about vasipa is that it's purified epa um, and that's important because the drug that came before it which was called lavaza was very similar but it had both epa and another substance called docahexanoic acid mm. uh, docosahexanoic acid mm -hmm. rather or dha poison so, Prior art is DHA plus EPA, yeah. Vasipa, just EPA. Pure EPA. Uh, and the difference, as I think you maybe kind of hinted at in your introduction, is that EPA, uh, it, at least there's some evidence to show that the EPA lowers triglycerides without raising LDL cholesterol. Uh, DHA also lowers triglycerides, but it does raise LDL cholesterol. So there's, there's a ton more going on, but that's kind of the, the extent of the, the facts that I want to talk about sure. in terms of those two drugs. So these two generic drug companies come along and they want to make generic versions of Vesipa. Uh, and they argue that the patent on Vesipa is invalid. And they, they argue that it's invalid because there's a prior art reference uh, called Mori. That's the, the name of the first author of the article. Uh, and Mori teaches that EPA uh, does not have a statistically significant impact on LDL cholesterol. It also teaches that the other compound that I mentioned, DHA, does raise LDL cholesterol uh, and that the increase was statistically significant. So I'll, I just want to quote from, from Mori because it's important to know exactly what it is, what it's stated. Uh, and here's the quote, LDL cholesterol increased significantly with DHA, parentheses, by 8%, P equals 0 0.019, but not with EPA, by 3.5%, not significant. Uh, so that might not be a huge difference, but but that's what Maury says. And Maury's so an judge, old paper; it goes back many years. Yeah, it's uh, it was published in two thousand. Okay, uh, and the invention in question is dated to two thousand eight. So that's what makes Maury prior art. It was it was before the date of uh, of invention, or actually, it's the date of filing now. But I think at the time of this case, okay, it was the date of invention that, that mattered. And the invention is we have a fish oil that lowers triglycerides without affecting LDL. That's the invention claim. Right. Well, that's that's the important... I mean, there's more to the invention than that, but okay. that's the part that's at issue in this I case. Okay, yeah. go on. Yeah. So, so the judge who's deciding the issue of validity decides that the invention is obvious. Uh, why? Well, it's the invention is about administering EPA alone without DHA, 
Mori, which is prior art, says why it's desirable to administer EPA alone, namely because EPA doesn't raise LDL cholesterol. That's probably enough for obvious obviousness, uh, or at least that's what the judge concludes. So then this article comes along. Uh, it's I, I don't think it's published yet, but it is posted and publicly available online. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's by a group of three people, uh, two physicians and one PhD biostatistician. Mm-hmm. And they disagree with this conclusion. They say that Mori doesn't actually show that EPA and DHA had differential effects on cholesterol. And the reason they say this is because Mori didn't test DHA and EPA against each other. Uh, ju- Mori just compared EPA to placebo and it compared DHA to placebo and it did that separately. So as far as I know, uh, as far as I could tell from the publication, none of the authors is a lawyer, uh, has ever been a lawyer, has any formal training in the law mm-hmm. uh, or, or any formal training in patent law. But, but the argument that they make is really interesting. Uh, before I can get too far into that yeah. argument, though, I think it might be helpful to understand a little bit about patent law. So yes. I, I can talk about that for a minute if it's helpful. Yes. Great. So, so here's the primer. A patent is a right granted by the U.S. government to exclude others from practicing an invention. Uh, it actually allows you to, pre- to prevent others from making, using, selling, offering to sell, or importing the invention. And it's a time-limited right. It lasts only for 20 years from the date the patent application was filed. Uh, it's also a document. It's not just a right. It's a piece of paper, or in, in today's uh, time, you can download the PDFs online. Um, and that... PDF document is issued by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, and it describes what the invention is. So if you want to show that the patent's invalid, you have to show that one of the criteria for patentability was not met. There are, there are several, but there are three main criteria. Uh, the first is that the invention has to be new or novel, uh, meaning that it can't be something that someone else already invented before you did. Otherwise, it's not an invention. And that's true even if you independently invent and you didn't know about the previous invention. Uh, It also has to be non-obvious. That means that if it's just a little bit different from what came before, uh, which again is called the prior art, you can't get a patent if the difference would have been obvious. And you have to consider about, uh, you have to consider who, uh, to whom it would be obvious. And the answer is it's not just obvious to you or me reading the patent. It's obvious to a person having ordinary skill in the art. And if you take a f- the first letter of each of those words, which come from the statute, it spells out facita, P-H-O-S-I-T-A, person having ordinary skill in the art. Uh, so in this case, you know, you can argue about exactly what the art is, but it's probably going to have something to do with, uh, with the product in question. The, the, uh, it's a drug product. It's a product that's designed to, um, you know, affect, uh, circul- circulatory function. So it's going to be someone that has some expertise in that area. Last, lastly, the patent has to be useful. The bar for usefulness is extremely low. It doesn't have to be better than the prior art. It just has to do something with some level of usefulness. Uh, and that's important, actually, in the context of drugs, because uh, if you look at a drug and see that it's patented, that standard means that the drug is not necessarily better than any drug that came before it, at mm. least not by virtue of the patent alone. Mm-hmm. So the first and last of those three are usually not as important. Uh, novelty and usefulness don't come up as often, uh, and that's also the case here. The focus is on obviousness. So I want to focus just on that one criterion. 
Uh, obviousness has been described as the ultimate condition of patentability, the most important condition. Uh, it's also called a ghost and a wayward phantom. These are some, some words that appear in some judicial opinions or in the literature. Uh, and the reason that those words are used is because it's extremely difficult to pin down exactly what, what obviousness means. Yeah. Uh, to some extent, there's some level of subjectiveness to this uh, about how you interpret that word. But it's not entirely without guidance. The, the Supreme Court has uh, weighed in on this. There is a foundational Supreme Court case on obviousness from 1966. Uh, it's called Graham versus John Deere, uh, or, for, or just I'm going to call it Graham for short. So in that case, uh, the court says that obviousness consists of three things. So there's sub-factors, uh, sub-factors of obviousness. First, you have to look at the scope and the content of the prior art. Uh, second, you have to look at the differences between the prior art and the claims at issue. And third, you have to look at the level of ordinary skill in the pertinent art. Uh, then once you consider all of those things, you can resolve the ultimate underlying question of obviousness. So in the Vesipa case, we can start with the second sub-factor, which is the differences between the prior art and the invention. So what is prior art? I kind of alluded to this briefly, but, but prior art is anything that was known or used prior to the date of invention uh, or, or the date of filing now that uh, we have the American Invents Act. So patents and other printed publications are the most common types of prior art. Uh, they're not the only types. It could also be public use uh, or it could be something that was on sale. So the, the judge considered a bunch of prior art references. You can see those in the opinion. But there are two that I want to focus on right now. Uh, the first is Lavaza. That was the drug approved in 2004 that had both EPA and DHA. Mm -hmm. uh, and the second was Mori, which I mentioned also, the, the paper published in 2000, which says LDL cholesterol increases when using EPA alone, but not when using DHA alone. So, so what's the legal standard for de determining whether Vesipa, uh, the invention, is obvious over Lavaza and Mori? And the standard is whether a skilled artisan, the Fasida I mentioned, would have been motivated to combine the teachings of the prior art to achieve the claimed invention. And the skilled artisan would have to have a reasonable expectation of success in achieving the claimed invention. Mm -hmm. So all there, all that's required is that there be something in the prior art as a whole to suggest the desirability of making the combination. So two elements, motivation and reasonable expectation. But was there motivation in this case? The judge says yes. The judge says... Uh, a skilled artisan would have been motivated to avoid increases in LDL cholesterol. Mm -hmm. And then Maury says, and again, I'm quoting, LDL cholesterol increased significantly with DHA by 8%, but now with EPA mm -hmm. uh, by 3, 3.5%. Right? So, the, the difference between those 3.5% and 8% may not be clinically important. It, it may not be large. It, it may not matter that much. Uh, but clinical benefit per se is not uh, a, a feature, is not a requirement of the, the patent statutes. I see. What, what matters is that Maury is suggesting is a possible advantage for EPA alone. Right. If it suggested that, that is almost certainly going to be enough for motivation. Right. So you could argue that Maury didn't suggest, did not suggest a, a possible advantage for EPA. Uh, but what the prior art teaches is a factual issue. Uh, it's possible the judge got it wrong. Maybe a skilled artisan would look at Maury and say, well, there's nothing about Maury that suggests a possible advantage. Uh, but the judge found the opposite. And in order for the appellate court to reverse, it's going to have to find that the judge committed clear error in, in that factual finding. And that's a relatively high bar. And so I think that's uh, you know, maybe less likely. Mm. If you read yeah. the Kerfman article... yeah. Uh, when it describes Mori, it actually uses the phrase hypothesis generating 
and suggest avenues for further research. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's almost a concession that there was a motivation to combine. Right, I see, I see, I see. Which yeah. means that the yeah. author should have agreed that the combination was obvious, at least on these grounds. Right? There may be other reasons why it's not obvious, but, but on so, those grounds, I think they should have agreed uh, that it was obvious. But, there was a reasonable expectation of, of success. Let me let me let me try to clarify just in my mind, and, and let me see if I'm right. So I guess what you're saying is the legal standard here is okay. This Mori article comes along, and what it says is that you know if you give uh, if you include DHA, you're likely to raise LDL. If you just give EPA alone, which is the VASEPA, um, it, we don't find a statistically significant increase in LDL. Uh, Kerfman and Deepak Bot and colleague uh, they are arguing that look, they're not looking at interaction coefficients. They're not facing the most stringent statistical test to say that this is really a differential effect. However, the average doctor reading this paper, they don't know all that stuff. They don't know all that stats mumbo jumbo. They just know this Mori article shows that, you know, DHA raises LDL, LDL bad. EPA doesn't raise LDL, LDL bad. So it would be a reasonable person might think, you know what? If I could slice this DHA out of this pill, this little vase, just cut that DHA out and just give that pure EPA, you know, it'd probably benefit my patient even more. That DHA is just dragging it down. And you're saying the legal standard is just that a reasonable person has to look at this data and come to the conclusion that that might be something worth giving a shot. Is that what you're is that is that accurate? Yeah, I'd say that that's basically the standard, but whether yeah. a skilled artisan would have been motivated to combine those references in the way that you just described. I see. Yeah. And, and you pointed out that, you know, that the skilled artisan would not necessarily know the statistical uh, technicalities that Kerfman and colleagues mentioned. Yes. They actually they, they actually assert the opposite. They assert that a skilled artisan <laughs> would have known yeah, yeah, I noticed the appropriate that, yeah. statistical test. Uh, they provide absolutely no authority or rationale for that proposition. Which is, you know, I, I don't know whether they're right or not, but it, it's certainly a bare assertion without some kind of supporting reasoning or, or authority is, uh, is not good enough in the law. That's not going to persuade a judge. So there must be something that, that gets cited in order to support that. And, and without a citation, those types of statements are considered to be conclusory. Uh, conclusory is a cardinal sin. You don't want to ever make an assertion that's conclusory in the law. Uh, that's usually when the judge is saying you just did something that you should not have done. I see. Um, I, I guess it is often the case in drug development that there are some similar compounds and that you do some early preclinical, early um, clinical studies with surrogate endpoints, and you find that compound A, you know, statistically significant changes in number. Compound B, you know, the number goes up a little bit, doesn't meet statistical significance. I would think that the average artisan, uh, as you as you put it nicely, but I guess that's the average um, practicing, you know, basic science doctor, researcher type. I think the average person would, you know, kind of say that that's good enough. They don't really, I think that, I mean, I think Kerfman and Deepak Bot are, you know, they, they set a very high standard of, uh, you know, interaction coefficients and things like that. Um, but I don't think the average doc knows that at all. I mean, I'm confident they don't because we still, they still use that kind of data to this day to decide go, no go for all sorts of drugs. Um, so I guess I would say that it's a Big, you'd have to you, people have to be a whole lot smarter than I think uh, if they all know that stuff because uh, I don't think it, I don't think many people know that. Um, yeah, go on. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. The, the standard is not absolute certainty. That that is not the legal standard. I see. It's not even statistical significance, which is of course less than absolute certainty. Oh right, yeah, yeah. There, there's no requirement in patent law that a prior art reference provide evidence sufficient for FDA approval. That that's an entirely separate standard. 
Uh, so as a general matter, at least, there's there's no requirement to compare A and B with each other directly rather than A with placebo and B with placebo right. separately. Uh, and that's what the court found. And, and I think it's likely that, that that specific finding is going to be upheld, although, you know, no guarantees, but that seems likely. Uh, let, let me just quote a few, a few key phrases from what courts have said uh, bearing on this issue specifically. Uh, the Federal Circuit, for example, which is the appellate court that will hear, hear this particular case, uh, recently stated that conclusive proof of effic efficacy is not necessary to show obviousness. Uh, there's a famous 2007 case from the Supreme Court called KSR versus Teleflex. Uh, they said that a person of ordinary skill is also a person of ordinary creativity and not an automaton. Mm. So what I think that means in this case is that a facita, right, the skilled artisan, is not going to act like a robot and say, well, there's no statistical significance, so you know I, I don't see any point in trying that. Uh, there's another case uh, that was uh, very close in some ways to this one where the court said the patent holder has cited no authority uh, for reasonableness of an expectation of success that you need to test specific doses versus placebo that show the relevant result with statistical significance. I see. I mean, that almost exactly states that the approach that, that Kirkman and colleagues uh, are, are proposing is, is not the one that the court is going to accept. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. It's interesting to me because, I mean, as somebody who sits on the sidelines and watches a lot of patent discussion, um, it seems as if sort of one of the broader themes in the patent law that people fault is that um, uh, they think that we're just too, we give away patents too easily, that there are a lot of patents given away, you know, on a lark that really are kind of excessive patents, that we build patent thickets and things of that sort, and we and their patents are too, are too lax. And here's a case where... Um, uh, I guess that that's that's the that's sort of fundamentally tied to the claim, which is that you gave away this patent, um, but this was something that a lot of people knew who did this stuff um, that that it would be reasonable to to give EPA a loan uh, because it didn't have that sort of deleterious effect on LDL. Uh, what are your thoughts on that and sort of the general view of the patent field that you guys are giving away too many patents? Yeah, so there has been what I would describe as a pendulum of attitudes toward patents. And this has taken place over decades and, and probably centuries. There was actually a patent abolition movement in the late 1800s uh, that culminated in the enactment of a couple of international treaties in the 1880s. Uh, so the pendulum swung from abolition to strong international patents. Then it swung back to invalidation uh, in the 1930s and 1940s. And then in the 1990s, there was a a strengthening of, of patent rights. And then starting in the mid 2000s, there has been a an erosion of, of patent rights. And so, you know, not to say that one is uh, a correct direction and the other is, is an incorrect direction, but there has been this pendulum that's gone back and forth. And since the mid 2000s, there have been a number of steps that have been taken that have cut back on patent rights. Uh, one of the most important is the creation of the Patent Trial and Appeal board, mm. uh, which has been reviewing and invalidating patents, including drug patents, but not limited to them, at, at a, a high rate. Those cases also get appealed to the federal circuit. Uh, the one for Visipa is actually coming from a district court. They also come from this administrative body within the Department of Commerce called the PTAB, Patent Trial and Appeal Board. So that's a nice summary of, and I guess I guess the, the law and um, public policy are a little bit different because I guess... The public policy question would be, you know, which conception of patents maximizes um, 
the public well-being by both incentivizing innovation, but also permitting dissemination of products in a timely fashion. And that's kind of an empirical question. But the legal way you think about it is strictly a matter of sort of interpreting the law. I mean, you're not you're not in the um, I don't know, maybe it's um, the the Richard Posner school of thought, the pragmatism school. You're in the sort of what exactly is stated in the law and, and how do we enforce the law? Is that fair to say? I mean, when I was analyzing this case, I was yeah. looking at what the law is yes, and how I it's able to apply to these set of facts. Uh, the, the issue that you raise is actually really interesting. Uh, what should the law be? But that's a that's a very different question. And I think you're right. It is an empirical question. But we have not figured out a way to generate the empirical data necessary to answer that question, in part because you can't randomize countries to have a patent system or not have a patent system and then see what happens Yeah, yeah. Uh, because inventions can be disseminated from one country to the other. And yeah. this actually was an issue in the, the 1800s during the patent abolition movement where there were some countries that either didn't have a patent system or I think there was one country that actually got rid of its patent system. And the argument was, well, they're just as fruitful in inventions as countries that, that don't have uh, patent systems. But the problem with that analysis is that you can invent a product in any country and profit from it by selling it in the countries that do have patent systems. So that they're not isolated systems that, that you would mm, need I see in order to saying. generate the, the empirical data. I see what you're saying. Right. It's the um I guess what you're talking about is sort of a philosophical problem, which is that there's some types of um, regulation that we can never have gold standard evidence because um, the actions in one place of the world will affect control groups. So for instance, we can never, I don't think we can randomize nations to accelerated approval versus no accelerated approval because the fact that some marketplaces have an accelerated approval will motivate manufacturers to, you know, chase the endpoints that are permitted for accelerated approval. You can't randomize places to different patent rules because places that do have patent rules will be a place you can sell your drug product for a high amount of money. So it's as if, you know, any patent rules anywhere give the incentive to somebody somewhere, I guess is what you're saying. So philosophically- That's exactly right. Yeah. It's a global market. It's a global market. Um, so there, these are decisions that we're never going to have gold standard evidence. But I guess the question is, um, between the gold, which is doesn't exist, which is a sort of mythical gold, and where we are now, which is really sort of uh, mostly historical accident, are there ways we can tinker around the edges to make it more of an sort of empirical kind of driven question? What do you think? Sure. I mean, there have been, I mean, this, this issue has been debated literally for centuries. And mm -hmm. there is, there have been uh, you know, empirical studies that suggest one way or the other. Uh, there are studies, for example, that show that um, uh, entrepreneurs who have patents uh, find it easier to attract venture capital funding. I see. Uh, there are there's survey data showing that uh, drug companies, uh, uh, you know, v value the patentability of um, inventions when they consider which projects to move forward. None of that is conclusive, though, but it, it does tend to show that patents have some value in incentivizing invention. But the real question isn't whether there's some value. I mean, it, it, it's very likely that there's some value. Exactly. It's whether that value is, is outweighs all of the negatives that uh, patents uh, impose. And, and that's just a difficult question to answer. I don't, I, don't really, I don't really know the answer. I would love to see more people today reviving the concept of patent abolition rather than just talking about compulsory licenses. I think that's too narrow of a yeah. question. 
I mean, I guess the real question is like, what's the sweet spot for patents? When do you give him? How long do you give him? Does it vary based on how cool or good the idea is? I mean, all these ways you might tinker with the patent rules to kind of optimize innovation um, as well as access and affordability, um, but also permitting fair profits. But you're right, compulsory uh, licensing is sort of, um, you know, the, 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 the language du jour these days, especially in the drug space. But I wonder if we might return to this case for one second. Um, so I guess your overall view of this case is that um, uh, these people who represent the generic manufacturers of Vesepa, uh, they, uh, they're pretty clever because they found this uh, paper, this Mora paper, that does show that um, the, the patent that gave, ex that really permitted, that would sort of extend exclusivity of Vesepa in, in Amarin's hands, that that patent um, may have been obvious at the time it was given based on information that was known eight years before in this Moray paper. Um, and so that's good for those lawyers to have found that and brought that up and brought it to the court. And the court read that paper and they said, yeah, a reasonable um, artisan in that space would have looked at this data and said, you know, DHA is probably deleterious and we probably need pure EPA. And if that was the if that was the case in 2000, the patent when given in 2008 was probably invalid. It shouldn't have been given. And that means that right now in 2020, the generic makers can make Vesepa and undersell Vesepa and, you know, do that, do the whole generic thing. And and Vesepa and Amarin Pharmaceutical, their counterclaim is that, well, no, um, in 2008, when you gave us that patent, it was still um it was still uh, a, a, a novel and original idea because uh, an artisan in this space would have known to ask that this um, this paper didn't show a statistically significant interaction, i.e. that DHA was deleterious, but EPA was not, um, and that that p-value crossed 0.05. You're showing DHA is worse than placebo, and you're showing that this is not worse than placebo, although it's, it's numerically higher, and you're not showing that the interaction coefficient is different. And so they're saying, so therefore, the average artisan would not have concluded that this is better. But the counterclaim to that is that the average artisan don't know all that stuff. They don't know all the interaction coefficients. Proof they don't know it is they never demand it for anything else they ever do. And you could survey 100 doctors and 100 drug developers and I'm sure 98% of them won't know the answer to that question. They won't even think it because that's a very nuanced and technical point that, uh, that sort of, a, a, uh, that sort of a, a, an esoterical purist might care about, but not the average artisan. Is that sort of, is that sort of a fair summary of where we are? You know, I, I'm not. I'm not sure about the issue of what a whether a fasia would know about the, fascia, the yeah. you know the, the statistical argument that they make. Um, I'm just not sure that it matters. I see that, that, because I think even if you recognize that testing A against placebo and B against placebo doesn't say anything about A versus B directly. Uh, that doesn't necessarily negate the disclosure and the importance of that disclosure in motiv motivating a skilled artisan to then pursue the invention. Yes, I see. So, it, I, I, I guess I wouldn't, I wouldn't focus as much on what the um, whether the skilled artisan uh, understood statistics. I'm not sure that's what this case is going to turn on. I see. I'm also I'm not necessarily disagreeing with the merits of the scientific argument that, that Kirkman uh, and his colleagues are making. Right? They're saying, uh, and to to give give some quotations to to their article as well. Right? They're saying statistically significant a statistically significant difference within one arm and no difference within another arm that does not imply a statistically significant difference between the arms. Right? That that may well be true. It's just not clear that that matters for purposes of obviousness. Yeah, and I guess I would say that. Um... I mean, 
I mean, I, I, that point is technically, I mean, that's a statistical truth. I think that's what they're saying. But I guess for questions of like this kind of question, whether or not to pursue a drug or not, I mean, to, to answer the question at what they want it answered at, the, the sample size of the study would have to be so much bigger. They'd have to power the study to detect that that difference between those two arms. Um, uh, in addition to detecting the difference between A and placebo and B and placebo, sample size would have to be a lot bigger. And that honestly just isn't how people do that kind of work in that space. I mean, I don't think that that's the standard um, in drug development. Um, to, to, to they, People would think that would be wasteful and setting the bar too high. Um Although I do agree it's a clever point. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a clever point that they make. Um, but I don't think that's what people do. And I don't think, um, yeah, I guess that's what I would say. Yeah, I think that's right. There's a confusion between or a conflation between the scientific standard and the FDA approval standard. Yeah. And, and they're, they're applying, the, the Kerfman and colleagues are applying a scientific standard, which is statistical sig- significance in a context where the relevant standard is not statistical, it's a legal standard, which is motivation to combine. And those are just simply two different standards and they don't, you can't interchange them. So overall, do you find this to be sort of an interesting um, case in patent law? Is this something that when you read about it, you, um, you liked what you read? Or, I mean, how do you think about it as, a, as somebody who works in this space? Is this one of the hot ticket items in patent law? Uh, you know, when I read it, I, my read of the case is that the dispute is primarily over the facts, not so much over the law. I see. And that makes it a lot less interesting because ah, if it's, yeah. the issue is the facts, that means when the next case comes along with different facts that this this case won't have uh, as much relevance. I see. Oh, that's interesting. Um, so you lawyers, you like to think about where there are disputes among, among the law and not among the facts. And I guess the reason that we doctors like it is we like to, we like to dispute the facts. But I think the reason it caught my eye was I thought, not to get too into the motives of people, but I thought um, it was interesting for me to see academic physicians uh, weigh in so heavily on an ongoing patent dispute. Um, what do you think about that? Is that something that happens more commonly than I'm aware of? I was also surprised by that. I've seen as a, um, over the years, I've seen a number of articles either in print or as a peer reviewer where there are folks who are not lawyers that are weighing in on legal issues that affect the health policy sphere. And uh, in some cases, it's very evident that nobody involved, you know, not the authors, not the peer reviewers, not the editors, had any background in law. And, and the result is that there are issues that are described incorrectly or without the proper nuance or without the application of the appropriate standards. And I mean, I could just give one example yeah. of where I've seen this, and that is in the the, the case of evergreening, yes. where I've seen a lot of criticism over patent evergreening, and it's sometimes described as extending patents. That is almost always not true. There, there are a few limited uh, circumstances under which you can extend a patent. These are to compensate for delays in the patent office or delays at the FDA. But, but the, the folks who criticize uh, what's going on in the drug space in terms of evergreen and are not usually talking about those types of extensions. They're talking about new patents. And new patents don't extend the old patents. The old patents are still expiring at the time that they were originally set to expire. And the, the relevance then of the new patent is uh, only applicable if you can convince the physician to prescribe the new patented product. 
instead of the older, now no longer patented product. Mm. And this is important in policy discussions because it means that the error is not within the patent system, it is within the prescribing system. I see. Uh, I mean, I don't want to overstate the case. There are, you know, there are things called hard switches where you remove the older product and so the only thing that's available is the newer product. But that, that's relatively uncommon. Much more common is that you have a new patented uh, variation. The old product is still available. You could buy it. Some, most people do buy it. But you have a small number of physicians prescribing this, uh, you know, new product that's 100 times more expensive and then complaining that there's something wrong with the patent system. I see. I see. So that's a, you, you view that as a, that, that's a, that's a failure outside of the patent system. Let me ask you a question about the law. Is it, uh, this is, this is maybe a naive question, but I guess one question is, um, if somebody has an idea of how they want a dispute to end, can, can they get there by, can you reason your way to anything in the law or are there things you can't reason your way to? I mean, I think this is something people look at the court, the, the Supreme Court, and they say that, you know what, they know what they want and they can, anyone can get there with the, with the tools of the law. And then I guess the next question is, do you believe that there are some, that there's some truth that's more right than other truths in the law? Is, is some law better than other law um, beyond the practical consequences of what it means for people, beyond the sort of the, the utilitarian outcomes? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a very philosophical question about whether there is an ultimate correctness that I, I don't know that I can answer that. But what I can say is that district courts have only one judge, yeah. whereas appellate courts have three. Of course, the Supreme Court has nine. And so the, the majority of cases uh, are unanimous. You may hear about the ones where there's a 5-4 split more often, but more often than not, uh, and you don't hear about these because there's less controversy. The, the judges are in agreement, and so I, I don't think there's, I don't think there's so much latitude that you can just throw away um, the outcomes of of these cases as being, you know, whatever the judges want. I, I think they are trying to apply the law, uh, and they usually agree with each other as how as to how it should be applied. I see. Well, that's well, that's good to know. Well, Jonathan Darrow, thank you so much for taking us through this. Uh, I found very interesting case. I really enjoyed reading that um, that article by, by by Kerfman and colleagues, and I enjoyed delving in a little bit um, to to the underlying disputes. But I think you did a really very nice job of ma- like outlining um, not only what the dispute was, but how we think through um, those sorts of questions and why that this particular objection may uh, ultimately, you know, not be nail on the head and probably unlikely to change the outcome in the, in the further court ruling. So thank you so much. I think that was really spectacular. Thanks so much for having me. All right, I'm back in plenary session, joined via Zoom by Dr. Toby Richards. Dr. Richards is Professor of Vascular Surgery at uh, the University of Western Australia in Perth, Australia. And he is the first author of a paper that's now out in The Lancet entitled Preoperative Intravenous Iron to Treat Anemia Before Major Abdominal Surgery, The PREVENT Study, a Randomized Double-Blind Controlled Trial. And this is a fascinating study, so I think you're in for a real treat. Dr. Richards, it's a pleasure to have you here. Pleasure. Dr. Richards, you are a practicing vascular surgeon, but nowadays it appears you're also a hematologist. How did you get interested in this study, and what made you decide to ask this question? Well, it's a really good question, and I think um, as a vascular surgeon, you need to remember that you are a plumber, not just of the tubes, Mm -hmm. but also of the substance that goes through the tubes. Yes. Um, So we need to understand the blood as well as the pipework. 
But the background to this study goes back many years. And it, in the late 90s, early 2000s, it was routine practice for blood transfusions um, during the course of any form of major surgery. My background and my PhD was in uh, transplantation medicine, mm -hmm. actually liver transplantation. I see. And I worked on the kidney pancreas transplant patient program and also the, uh, the, the sole kidney transplant program. I see. But the interesting thing was, is in the setting of transplantation, you try to avoid the use of another transplant, i.e. a blood transfusion. Sure. Because this is associated with worse outcomes. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we optimize the patients as much as possible with erythropoietin and iron before surgery to avoid that additional transfusion after sure. surgery. That was one aspect. The other aspect is, if you're tired, exhausted, and knackered, essentially, before a marathon, sure. you're not going to complete your marathon very well. Sure. And surgery is a marathon. So surely we should train our patients and optimize our patients to ensure they're in the best health before their surgical procedure. Mm -hmm. And one key aspect of that would be anemia and iron deficiency. And my question was, as so many people are anemic prior to surgery, and we know that that group of patients do worse in terms of length of hospital stay, complications, overall outcome, if we can treat that anemia, do we treat the risk factor and therefore, do we also treat the potential complications as well? In the same way that an athlete would prepare, prepare for a marathon. That's well put. And that, that makes a lot of sense. And, and to give listeners a little bit of background, you know, PREVENT is, 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 is uh, just a really terrific randomized controlled trial that asks a very plausible question that I think you framed very nicely, which is, you know, if a man has a hemoglobin level um, less than, I believe it was 13 for men and 12 for women, um, and they're scheduled for a major open abdominal surgery, so you know they're going to lose some blood, does it make sense to give them a slug of intravenous IV iron, which is something that as the introduction makes clear, was a recommended standard of care at the time that this trial uh, was launched. And you're asking for the primary endpoint of a combined endpoint, which I thought was clever, of both death and the need for transfusion. Are you able, able to ameliorate that? As you put it, um, are you able to basically give somebody the leg up they need before going into a marathon? Absolutely right. And it's the same way you know, if you have a diabetic prior to major surgery, we spend time optimizing right. their diabetes. If you have hypertension prior to major surgery, you optimize that hypertensive med medication. So are we, were we missing the most obvious thing that affects a third of all people undergoing major surgery? You launched this trial a while back, and, and in, your, in your figure, you have recruitment by site and by month. Um, and it took a while. It took some years to accrue for this study. Um, how do you make sense of the accrual? What were the challenges? Um, but, you know, I should point out that even though there may have been challenges, it is slow, steady growth. I mean, there weren't any sort of dips or bumps. You you kept it going. You persisted. Um, the, key, the key to a good clinical trial is finding a good clinical trialist. That's the biggest thing I've learned from this. I see. Talk is cheap but action is rich uh -huh. and we have a lot of support and the key to this was the main blood transfusion body in the United Kingdom called NHS Blood and Transplant and they were completely behind the study. 
which is a great asset to have because yes. we're essentially trying to disprove their number one sales product. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> you can only take away their market share, right? <laughs> yeah. Exactly that. Yeah. But because it's the NHS and um, you know, there's no drive for profit, the concept of science and doing what right comes first. Yes. And that, that was a really, really important thing is that we felt we were doing the right thing and the people we engaged with felt we were doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. Now, with regards to recruitment, when someone comes up prior to major surgery, on average, they have seven to nine preoperative clinical appointments. I see. By the time I they've see. done their scans, their outpatient appointments, their blood tests, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The most important thing we've learned is with any clinical trial, go back and talk to the patient. The patient doesn't want to come for an extra visit. I see. It doesn't matter if you were giving them intravenous gold. <laughs> right, 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 right. I see your point. Yeah, it, it, they don't want to come back. They're doing so much before the operation. Okay. And these people are scared and they're worried and all they can think about is their operation. And the really interesting thing is the way we got around this is when we phoned people to ask them or offer for their help, um, we specifically said, your surgeon has said that we can contact you. I see. Yes. They it's great. Um, I, I sit here as a surgeon in front of a hematologist, and I can tell you the patients do what their surgeon says. Right. I know. I know that. <laughs> yeah. I see. Yeah. No. That's a, that's a, that's terrific. Yeah. So the, a lot of time and effort went into incorporating this into normal clinical care, having nurses hanging around in the clinic, uh, identifying people, and working very closely with the laboratories to get the results of blood tests back very quickly. I see. And that was key. And, and I think it's key to the fundamental question of the study, because now, um, in the last few years, we've seen the rise of the use of intravenous iron quite appropriately um, for the treatment of iron deficiency. But the question of the study is, was this a one-size-fits-all yes. to anemia prior to surgery, which is the only way you can clinically introduce it into normal practice. You don't have time. Patients won't come back for detailed hematological uh, assays. Yes. You, you can't get transparent saturations in one hour. Yes. Yes. I um, thought, yeah, no, th those are all terrific points. And I guess one question I had for you is, for the person who decided not to participate in the study, were they getting iron or were they not getting iron? What was the kind of culture among the people who didn't participate? Well, the treatment of anemia and iron deficiency has undergone a revolution in the last 10 years since um, new intravenous iron products became available. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about iron carboxymaltose and iron isomaltoside. These products are non-dextran-containing irons. Yeah, so the, the good the stuff. Risk of anaphylax yeah, it's the good stuff. So you, the historical risk of anaphylaxis is not there. Yes. Furthermore, you can give a full treatment dose, 1,000 to 1,500 milligrams in one go in 15 to 30 minutes. So it, it really is a one-stop treatment for iron deficiency. Yes. For instance, in women's health, which is perhaps the biggest need here globally, yes, sure. um, 
you know, women on average suffer eight years with iron deficiency anemia. Yes. And in many cases, they only ever need this one treatment. So that those products came available at the turn of the last um, decade, so uh, 2009, and then late, the second one came out a few years later. So at the start of the study, no one was getting intravenous iron. But in 2016, I see. Uh, NICE came out with the internet guidelines saying, you should be treating preoperative anemia with intravenous iron. Yes, I see. I see. So it changed kind of mid-trial. Yeah, and that was a really big impact because about half our centers suddenly came to us saying, well, we can't randomize anymore. I you see, know, yeah. NICE has stated we, we should be doing this. Yeah. And that, that was a huge problem for a national body um, to actually make a statement for which there was a national uh, government randomized controlled trial to address the same question. Uh, and really, we wrote back to NICE going, hey, guys, aren't you supposed to wait for the results of our trial <laughs> yeah. for me before you tell everyone what to do? Um, could there be and, a, yeah, no, but could there be a more perfect metaphor for what's going on right now with COVID-19? We have randomized control trials of convalescent plasma and we just authorized the EUA use. You're, it's exactly the tension you describe, which is on the one hand, we are investigating the answer. And on the other hand, you are taking actions that make it harder to investigate the answer. Uh, I mean, we could, we could talk on this subject for the next two hours nonstop. Yeah. Um, you can talk about drugs and we have a national pandemic with a disease that, for which we have no idea what the treatment is. Yet on average, most people are getting two interventions for the treatment of their COVID. Yes. Both interventions, yes. whether or not convalescent plasma or some fancy drug with in the mix of that on the end of it. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, costing thousands and thousands, all with their own side effects. Yes. Um, it's, it, I don't understand it. And don't even get me to start started on the device industry. Oh, that's uh, that's that's the next le that's the next frontier. Um, no, that's terrific. That's well put. And then I guess the, my my last question for you before we jump into kind of what you found is, um, you you picked a, a specific type of uh, of iron that you used in your study, um, ferric carboxymaltose. Um, and I guess my question was, um, what. Was there any sort of thing that led into that decision? Why it was just one rather than one of several? Or, um, you know, yeah. So how did you actually decide? Yeah. No, it's a good question. Um, when I designed this trial, it was actually the first submission for funding was May 2010. So mm -hmm. we're talking 10 years ago. I see. And at that time, this was the only modern intravenous iron product. I on see. The I see. That's how it was. Yeah. There was absolutely no involvement uh, from the drug companies in in this in any aspect of this trial. Mm, I see. Okay. Well done. Um, and. So why don't you tell us, I mean, there's a lot to talk about in the results and I, you know, we could talk a lot more about the methods, but I think maybe we should just jump in and, um, you know, is it fair to say that this trial kind of surprised you? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, when I got the results of this trial, two things. One, I was very happy with the conduct of the trial. Yes. Because if you look at the PICO of this study, I'm very happy with that. Yes. The population was major abdominal surgery. Yes. Around about 60 or 70 operations were esophagogastrectomies. Uh, there were hepatic resections, Whipple's operations, 
all big operations, no matter how you define that, they yes. were big. The patients uh, were treated at least two weeks prior to surgery. Yes. So the hypothetical effect efficacy of the intervention had two weeks, which is ample time to see an erythrogenic response to intravenous iron. The operations were performed as planned, and our follow-up for the primary endpoint was over 97%. And even when you look at the predefined subgroup analysis or the per-protocol analysis, the results are exactly the same. So I'm very happy with um, the quality of the methodology and the way that 184 colleagues conducted this protocol. It's a huge undertaking. It's not me. It's I present this trial on behalf of 487 patients and over 184 active on-the-ground participants. You know, and that's really nice that you put it that way because as a trialist, you know, the part you can take pride in is that you did it right and the rest of it is what biology decides. That's not the part that you control. And so it's really important, as you state, to focus on the part that is in our control, which is you did the right study. You, 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 you asked the right hypothesis and everything by all those protocol measures was done really exquisitely well. That's well put. So the primary result was whether or not a patient got transfused or not. Yes. We chose that because when giving or initiating a blood transfusion, a doctor will walk along and go, give the patient two units of blood. The concept of why you're giving two units instead of one unit, <laughs> that's another argument that makes no sense whatsoever. Oh, yeah. Um, so the primary endpoint was surgical. Do you have a transfusion or do you not? We in introduced death because death is a major confounder. Um, and unfortunately, people tend to get transfused far more in the run-up to um, a fatal event. Um, and similarly, you can't follow up a dead person after sure. six months. So the primary endpoint to prevent was death or blood transfusion. And 67 people reached the primary endpoint in one group, and 69 people reached the primary endpoint in the other group. Mm -hmm. There is absolutely no difference whatsoever between the intervened group and the control group. There is no difference on subgroup, predefined subgroup analysis, and there is no difference on the per protocol analysis. So in answer to the question, should people prior to major abdominal surgery routinely receive intravenous iron for the management of anemia? The answer is no, because it doesn't appear to make a difference to the primary endpoint. And also it doesn't make any difference to the length of hospital stay or post-operative complications. Yeah. And that is, um, you know, uh, that is an extremely important result to know. And, uh, and I think when you contrast that with the 2016 NICE decision, really frames it well that, you know, you were in the process and th thankfully you were able to finish and answer this question. Um, you know, a trial that took uh, at least a decade of work. Um, and and that's, a really, that's a very clear answer. Um, you want to talk a little bit about the few things that kind of made the picture a little bit more interesting or kind of, kind of ch changed things a little? Yeah. Well, I mean, it was completely the answer I was not expecting. Right. I see. Uh, yeah. 
So after I'd recovered from my shock, uh, <laughs> alcoholism and depression, uh, <laughs> then, I, then I came through this and sat down and looked in detail at the study. And the first thing you want to do, as you know, is pick holes in your own study um, or get colleagues to pick holes in it. Um, so once then I'd accepted uh, that conclusion, I guess the key thing that I really like about it is that it was 69 versus 67. So it wasn't sort of 74 versus 62. Sure. And people start reading P equals 0.08. Yes. Uh, with, with variable confidence intervals or whatever. Yes. The, the primary result is tight and the confidence intervals are really narrow. Yes. So I'm very happy that that is actually what reality is. Yes. Um, so... The, the secondary endpoints were interesting. We looked at length of intensive care stay and length of hospital stay. And interestingly, there was no difference. Complications were measured in two separate ways. One is the traditional Clevian Dindo method, for which there was no difference in minor or major complications. And the other one was something called a post-operative morbidity score, which is a more practical way of assessing things. So was the patient on supplementary oxygen? Yeah. Did they have a catheter in? Did they require antibiotics? Yeah. And again, the difference. Yeah. The really interesting thing was the efficacy of the intervention. So we started off with a baseline of hemoglobin of about 110. Yes. Those who received intravenous iron increased by only five. Yes. We're expecting from the literature about eight. <clears throat> and hoping for more than that, hoping for essentially uh, 10 grams per liter um, or one gram per deciliter increase. So the efficacy was slightly less than we thought. After surgery, there was a big dip in the hemoglobin, as you would expect from major surgery. So on average, you dip by uh, 30 grams per liter in major surgery, and we did. The really interesting thing was, though, that those people who'd received intravenous iron their hemoglobin recovered far faster. Yeah, I see that. And you you can see that even by day five in hospital. Yeah. And the startling difference is in the post-operative recovery phase, those people who did not receive intravenous iron on average remained anemic at six months, which, which is quite startling. It means that people don't fully recover um, their operation. And so that asks more questions. The second important thing is that those people who did receive intravenous iron, on average, did completely recover their anemia by eight weeks. And that was sustained to six months. And there's a huge separation between the two groups in discharge. So the real question is, what does that mean? Yeah. Um, now, there's very little data on that. As hospital doctors, we're very, very good at managing acute situations. Yes. But we're not very good at managing chronic disease. Yes. As surgeons, we say goodbye to our patients at the hospital door. And yes, we sort of follow them up. Yes. Um, but if they've got cancer, then we pass them on to the oncologists. Um, we actually have no idea how people truly recover from surgery. Yes. That's a, yeah, I think, I think that's a fascinating finding. And I think what one wonders is the people who did not receive IV iron, one wonders if they're still anemic two years later. Um, 
possible? Absolutely. And what's the impact on other aspects of their care? Yeah. So in this group of 487 people, 250 in their post-operative recovery received chemotherapy. I see. And so we need to utilize the results of this trial now and go back and ask, within the trial outcomes, can we see a difference? And we can in some. So the first thing we looked at was the EQ5D, which is quality of life. And that really surprisingly showed no difference whatsoever. My interpretation of that is from other studies that I've looked at. Um, but when you ask someone, how are you? The answer is, I'm fine, doc. Right. And so they seem to change their lifestyle to meet their disability. That's interesting, yeah. But they, that's my interpretation. And I've done quite a lot of cross-sectional work comparing fit and healthy women, so to speak, with profound anemic, anemia and iron deficiency yeah. and no anemia and iron deficiency. And their quality of life in cross-sectional studies of several thousand, yeah. um, there's no difference at all. How could this be? Yeah. Is that uh, we sure. change we change our expectations to our activity? That might be an interesting role for someday a Fitbit study or something to track um, and show that even though quality of life satisfaction is the same, that the actual movement is substantively different. Oh, well, funny you should mention that. Um, <laughs> uh, we'll be looking at that soon. Okay. Um, but the really interesting thing from this study is that we measured readmission rates yeah. to hospital. Yeah. After surgery, twenty to twenty-five percent of people get readmitted within 30 days. Yeah. We regard that as a failure of discharge. Yeah. And there's a significant difference between the two groups. Those people who received intravenous iron were far less likely to be readmitted to hospital for a complication. In the setting of this study, we adjudicated the readmission reasons, which were free text, prior to unblinding. Yes. So those results do hold true, but we didn't dictate why a patient should be readmitted. Sure. And we didn't describe exactly the reasons for readmission. Sure. But what we can say is there appears to be an association with the use of intravenous iron and the reduction uh, for readmission rates to hospital after major surgery with a post-operative complication particularly a reduction in infection. Is that true? Is that, that's that was, fascinating. That's yeah. fascinating. Especially with the hypothesis that um, iron sequestration is long thought to uh, be a, a response to infection and that giving iron is thought to fuel infection, if anything. Absolutely. Um, there has been, it, it's an innate response yeah. for the human being to sequester iron. Yes. However, that innate response is probably not relevant in the 21st century. Sure. Where we have antibiotics in hospitals. Sure. Or it may be, so, yes, yeah, or even more complicated than we think. Um, I know. Actually, I, yeah. you know, I'm a, I'm a, so where, you asked where this all started. Yes. This, the first use that I did for intravenous iron 15 years ago was in the management of the diabetic foot. Yes, okay. This is all infected patients who have essentially anemia chronic disease or a functional iron deficiency. And the use of intravenous iron makes these patients with this chronic disease feel better. And we showed in vascular surgery a reduction in transfusion rates of 90% 
down to 30% in this patient population. That's interesting. And that's where this all came from. There is concern over the use of iron, particularly with erythropoietin as a primary endpoint of infection. That data comes from uh, Ed Litton's meta-analysis in the BMJ several years ago. However, in the Cochrane reviews, which we've updated, we have not seen um, the endpoint of infection for any reason in those patients receiving intravenous iron. And that, I think, is borne out from this study. Uh, there was no difference in infection between the two groups. Um, and in fact, there may be a reduction in infection, uh, particularly in wound healing and pneumonia, uh, in those people that received intravenous iron. Interesting. Now, the question you're asking is, why is this? Well, it's plausible in two ways. Iron is your fundamental substrate for hemoglobin. So it makes the buckets that carry the oxygen from the lungs to the cells. But iron is vitally important in converting that oxygen into energy and aerobic metabolism. Sure. And that's because the cytochromes in the mitochondria yeah. are predominantly iron-based, yeah. uh, which facilitate aerobic metabolism. What we do know, what's vitally important for wound healing, aerobic metabolism, good cell metabolism, so an iron-rich cell will have a healthy mitochondria um, and is likely um, to promote cell turnover and promote uh, wound healing better uh, than an iron-deficient cell. That's and a little unknown fact, little unknown fact here, uh, the skin is actually one of the richest sources of iron in the body. So the ferritin in the skin averages between 300 and 400. I did not uh, know that. Yeah. That's fascinating. And in, in women, uh, iron deficiency, a precipitous iron deficiency, such as after pregnancy, um, if there's any blood loss, is probably the commonest cause of hair loss in women, uh, and it responds to intravenous iron therapy. Oh, fascinating. Yes, uh, that part, that, uh, that part I, I am aware, but I didn't know that the skin has such a high affinity for ferritin. Um, yep. Dr. Richards, this is, um, you know, I know our time is, is running short. Um, but this is a fascinating randomized control trial. And like many well-done, well-executed randomized control trials, you answer some questions and you also end with many more questions that will fuel your, your curiosity. I'm wondering, um, you know, what are the next steps you envision for your work, um, uh, your, your work with iron? Uh, what do you see as the next step? Um, and uh, yeah, where are, you, where are you going? Well, we've got quite a lot going in the world of iron. Okay. Um, we have... Um, detailed subculture experiments looking at mitochondrial function at the moment. Yeah. Um, that is uh, translated into animal experiments looking at exercise fitness. Um, we're also doing an awful lot of work in women's health. Whilst I focused in surgery, the question I was asking in the surgical patients was, if we treat the anemia, do the patients feel better and yes. therefore fitter for their surgery? Yes. In the setting of a hospitalized patient, I can't put that patient on a treadmill. But the commonest population with iron deficiency is essentially fit and healthy women with heavy menstrual bleeding. And that we've shown is just as common in Olympic athletes as it is in uh, people who go for a 5K job. So we're utilizing a population of fit and healthy women who exercise regularly 
doing full exercise testing and randomizing them to intravenous arm or placebo I see. to see whether or not it improves fitness with a primary endpoint of VOT max. But particularly, we're looking at um, skeletal muscle function as well. That then lends itself really nicely to um, the heart failure studies, where we know that intravenous iron is highly beneficial for patients with heart failure. Um, and then hopefully come back to surgery again. So what's next? Well, what we know from this study is that giving intravenous iron preoperatively is really hard work. Um, we also know that the efficacy appears to be in the post-operative setting. Yes. So randomizing people after major surgery when they're in a hospital, yes. perhaps before they wake up from anesthetic so they can be completely blinded, uh, to intravenous iron or placebo with an endpoint of infection and readmission to hospital inside 90 days is the next target. And I think that that's, that's the right way to do science. You have a hypothesis that comes from one study and it leads itself naturally to the next study. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's a good idea. That's, that's well put. So I look forward to that. Um, and will yeah. you be running that with your UK collaborators? Um, so I'm now based in Australia. Yeah. So we'll be aiming to uh, apply for funding here in Australia okay. for that study. Um, the key question, though, now is the whole COVID question. Yes. And so I think this study is really reassuring because in the COVID era, surgery has been hugely impacted, and I'm sure the case is for many other aspects of course. Of right. But one of the key things we're not doing in surgery now is we're not seeing people prior to major surgery. Ah, that's great. Had this trial been strongly positive, then it would have raised a real logistical issue for patients. How do we get them in a hospital to treat them prior to surgery? So actually, this study is really reassuring in the COVID era that we don't need to do that. That's well put. The, the next question is, how do, we, how do we define recovery after surgery? And how do we monitor that in an appropriate way that my primary endpoint can be validated? Mm -hmm. Um, and that, that's, that's a very interesting question because I'm asking, what is a good recovery from surgery? Yes. And that is, um, you know, despite the fact we've had so many surgeries, that's still something that requires rigorous definitions in a randomized study. But, um, but that's, that's, a, that's an excellent topic to work on. Well, I think the first thing to do is we've got to go back and talk to the patients. Yes. Um, and that's something that many people forget. Um, and obviously I read your blogs, is you see the primary endpoint for many studies of a temporary regression of disease process or <laughs> right. some other thing like that. Yeah. And it, it drives me nuts because you can't help but think, has anyone actually gone and asked what the patients want? Yes. If, if I'm having chemotherapy and you're filling me up with drugs, what, what actually is my goal? What's my objective here? What would I, if you take me out of the room yes. and sit down and say, what do you really want? Um, I, right now, because I don't have cancer and I'm not having chemotherapy, I've got no idea. But if you ask me today, it would be cure. If, if I had metastatic disease, I think my answer might be totally different. Yeah. No, I think that's well put. I mean, all good research begins and ends with the patient, and, and this clearly falls in that vein. Um, this is a terrific study. Um, that is out September 4th in The Lancet, which is hopefully the day I actually release this podcast. So it's timed well. Um, Dr. Richards, thanks so much for walking us through it. Very interesting study. 
uh, encourage people to read it. And we have to have you back to talk a little bit more about the sort of intersection between surgery and hematology and how you became an honorary hematologist. Thank you very much. I'd be delighted. And uh, where should we start? Venus thromboembolism? <laughs> <laughs> There's quite a lot to cover. Yeah. There's a lot. <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Richards. Pleasure. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Season 3 of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time. <laughs>